Here at the Real Life Community Center, our mission is to assist individuals who have been impacted by incarceration, homelessness, who are battling addiction to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community to hinder their prosperity and their ability to have a thriving future. Our vision is to walk alongside our clients, to see them grow into prosperous and thriving life while highlighting the barriers associated with those exiting incarceration and overcoming addiction in order to reduce the negative stigmas and stereotypes. Every day, men and women looking for second chances and redemption walk through our doors. They are seeking hope, motivation, and skills in order to make that change. Through community partnerships and financial investments, Real Life is able to provide clients specifically with what they need, intense case management, an expected mother's program, recovery housing or housing referrals, mental health services, classes and groups, job preparation and placement, transportation assistance, substance use disorder support, educational opportunities, a clothing closet, a computer lab, and more. And most important, unconditional love and support. All donations directly support providing services to further our mission of assisting individuals who have been impacted by incarceration or homelessness or those battling a substance use disorder to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community that hinder their prosperity and ability to have a thriving future. If you would like to donate to Real Life Community Center, you can donate on our webpage, www.reallifeprogram.org backslash donate, or you can donate directly through the anchor.fm app or listening platform. Welcome to Real Talk of Real Life. I'm your host, Ryan Riggs. Today, going to keep it on the authentic, you know, recovery experience-based path, and we, today we're joined with, uh, by Mr. Johnny Harrell. Johnny is a, um, a native of Norfolk, Virginia, uh, just recently released uh, from the Virginia Department of Corrections uh, after doing a three-year sentence, and, um, you know, we, we've been chatting up a lot, uh, you know, just about his life and about recovery, and, um, you know, I, I wanted to have Johnny on today to kind of, you know, continue giving a, a, a an authentic, raw look at, um, you know, uh, and also humanize, you know, these people um, that are that are involved in the criminal justice system. So, um, so thanks for being here, Johnny. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. So, uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself so we can kind of get a baseline of who you are? Oh, I'm Johnny. You know, I, I grew up, born and raised in Norfolk, Virginia. A neighborhood called Ocean View. Anybody's from the Tidewater area knows knows Ocean View. Uh, my mom and dad had owned their own business for about forty years, automotive, you know, like body shop and the used car lot and towing mechanics stuff like that. Uh, pretty good childhood, you know. I had uh, five siblings. I had uh, three brothers and two sisters. Um, really didn't start messing up. Messed up a little bit when I was a, uh, a teen, did a little bit of juvenile time, and I kind of got it straight for a while. And uh, In 2005, uh, my brother got killed by a drunk driver, and everything kind of just fell apart then. Just heroin entered my life, and everything pretty much went downhill from there. So, um, so you, I guess you kind of grew, you said you grew up in a, and uh, you know your family, your parents had an automotive business, so um, so it's safe to say you didn't um, you didn't kind of grow up uh, 
you know, low income or bad area or needing, um, you know, just, uh, you know, in a bad home, I guess I, I would say. Yeah, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't call it like the greatest area in the world, but as far as the uh, the home, uh, everything would stay with my mom and dad always. Um, they worked really hard to provide for all of us. All of us were all taken care of pretty well. I got to say that for sure. And you say you had how many brothers and sisters? I had uh, three three brothers and two sisters, and I, I also have a, a sister from my dad's first marriage that um, lives up in uh, Farmville, so I got some family that lives up there too. And so where do you fall in in, in the uh, array of kids as age-wise? Um, I would have been right in the middle. Uh, I, I would be number four, so it's kind of, you know, if you're going to split the six, it's be me and my sister, my older sister, in the middle, so I had two two she had two older and i had you know what i'm saying so it's yeah right there yeah so it's funny because i'm the middle child too and i've been <laughs> i was reading somewhere that uh you know middle children for whatever reason um you know are prone to um you know kind of get into some trouble man so uh do you think that kind of played uh at all into you know being in the middle um might have played at all into some of your decision making as a child you know, I've I've often thought about that because it's it seemed like that my my older brothers and sisters seemed like uh, they kept their stuff together pretty well. So, you know, not to like lay any blame or anything, but maybe it's just my mom and dad kind of got a little more relaxed by the time I come around, and uh, they kind of started slacking up a little bit. Although my, my my younger sister seems to, for the most part, uh, have her stuff together. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe I kind of had a little bit more leeway and <clears throat> kind of led me to have a little bit more freedom where they were a little more strict on them coming up. So, Yeah, so I had an older brother, man. He was like, my older brother was real well-to-do, you know what I mean, good at sports, um, pretty handsome, had a lot of girls after him when I was growing up. <laughs> and so it was kind of like uh, I can remember being, being uh, you know, playing sports and going to school and, and I always was referred to my brother's name is Chris I was always referred to as little Chris you know or little Riggs because um, that was what they called him you know was Riggs and so um, you know and once again like I said like kind of like you said I, I'm not shifting the blame at all we're just talking about facts you know what I'm saying and um, you know look at now that I've been in recovery and I've been able to look at uh, look back at some of that stuff and write about some of it you know I've noticed that um you know, the way I internalize things is, um, you know, he was such a, he was so good at everything. And, 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 and then, um, you know, I wasn't quite as good at certain things, sports and things like that. And, uh, you know, also got into a little bit of trouble um, younger that I always kind of felt like I, I, I just wasn't quite good enough, man. So, um, you know, and that type of mentality kind of uh, as I grew, that that seed that I planted myself in my own mind that I wasn't good enough kind of began to manifest itself. Um, you know, that's, I'm not saying that that's your story, but that's you know that's how it was for me. But um, that's kind of why I asked that question, man. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes complete sense, man. Just uh, like I say, not shifting no blame or nothing. It just seems like the middle children just kind of, so for some reason or another, we just get a little bit more leeway and we just kind of. We kind of set our own path, and then sometimes it may be too late for the time the parents realize, well, maybe I should batten down the hatches on them a little bit. They, you know, we've already set sail or gotten too old to be able to tell what to do, so they kind of just 
all right, well, they're just going to do what they're going to do now. I'm trying, you know, do the best I can to help them until they get it straightened out. So, so what was it like growing up in Norfolk? You know, I'm from Richmond. You know, I, I know all about this city here, but not real familiar with the uh, Tidewater area um, in regards to, you know, what the, the culture is like there and stuff like that. So, so what was that like? Uh, to me, Norfolk is, is like a pretty unique place because, you know, you got the military there. So you have all different walks of life there. You know, you got, you know, people coming from all around the world to be in that area because, you know, the, the, the military bases bring them there. Uh, as far as like the individual neighborhood where I lived at, Ocean View, it's like, uh, it's like kind of makes it feel like it's like a big town you know, with a, with a, with like a small town feel to it. Cause it seems, you know, like a, a lot of people know each other. Everybody goes to a lot of the same places. It's ocean views a very, t- to me, a unique place. And there's a lot of great people. I have a lot of great memories there. A lot of, um, a lot of great friends, had a lot of great loss too, you know, lost some good people. Um, I, I wouldn't change any of that for anything in the world. Um, it's, I truly love the place, but you know, it it's it is what it is. So, how you liking the feel of Richmond since you've been here? Well, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. It's kind of like it's kind of like walking around downtown Norfolk on steroids. You know, it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's a lot bigger. It's a lot more going on. It's got like more of a city feel to it. But it, at the same time, it's still it still seems like it's really you know pretty mellow. You know, all the people's you know. Everybody that I've met so far seems like they're, uh, you know, they're, they're good people. Everybody seems to be pretty chill. I ain't really seen nothing too crazy or nothing. All right, so, um, so I guess we'll go back to like your. So I know you said your 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 addiction or your your troubles with substance use, um, kind of took off after your brother, um, you know, was killed in a, in a car accident. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that. You can tell me a little bit about that. But I guess I'm curious as to, you know, your your adolescent years or your teenage years, um, you know, what that kind of looked like in regards to the partying and stuff like that. Because I know, you know, it's kind of, it's not uh, atypical for, um, you know, for, you know, a large portion of the youth, uh, at least, you know, ages probably 13 to 18 is about the time when we start kind of going to parties and hanging out. So So what was that like? Um, well, you know, of course, y'all, all of us, or most of us probably have like their little experience where they start, you know, drinking a little liquor and getting, getting stupid drunk. I remember the first time I got drunk on some really terrible whiskey <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, they were trying to give me a uh, coffee with some hot sauce in it that sobered me up before I went home and that didn't work too well. I never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. And I don't want to ever hear it again, but, um. Other than that, uh, through my teenage years, other than just, you know, a little bit of drinking here and there, probably smoked, you know, smoked some pot, of course. Um, when I got to, like, 16, 17 years old, um, was, you know, pretty heavy into uh, into smoking weed. I had my, um, had my time of, you know, tripping on acid and LSD and stuff like that. Uh, bumped around with the cocaine for a little while until, you know, that probably came around around 17, 18 years old. And that just come from, you know, being around the weed scene and stuff because I, like, got into selling a lot of pot and stuff. So that that kind of just came second nature. Of course, the cocaine kind of got away from me a couple times. I mean, ain't going to try and sugarcoat that none, you know. Ain't got no hide, nothing to hide. So, um, 
but for so all in all though you would would you consider yourself at that age at least at that point in time kind of somewhat manageable in regards to your your you know any trouble with substance use or or was it like you know uh okay I'm getting a little out of hand I can cut back yeah it was more yeah more along them lines there because you know it was just it was more of a every once in a while thing and you know I had a I was working pretty hard I was ma- I was hustling pretty hard I was making good money uh, my kids came along, so, you know, I had my own place. I had some race cars and stuff. So at that time, I was leading a pretty good, normal life. And so how old were you when uh, this, this this terrible incident happened with your brother? And uh, if you don't mind, man, I mean, of course, you know, I ain't trying to, you know, uh, you know, get you to talk about nothing you don't feel comfortable talking about. But, you know, what what was that like? How old were you when that happened? And tell me a little bit about that whole incident. Well, it was uh, it was in two thousand five, so uh, I'm forty one now. So I'm even trying to do the math. <laughs> I think I was probably twenty six, somewhere right around there. And um, he he was my ace. You know, me and him spent a lot of time together growing up. A lot of time even after we were grown. Was he your closest, your next closest sibling, or was he older, or where, where was he, he at? On he was he was he was uh, almost four years um, younger than me. So I was like his older brother, but you know, growing up, he gravitated more towards me and my friends than a lot of like making his own friends. So he become like part of our whole clique too, because you know, me and him had such a tight and close relationship that you know, like a lot of my friends just kind of, you know, took him under his wing and you know, like accepted him into you know our little thing. So he was like he was almost just like one of us, except he was just a little younger, but. We always had a really tight bond, and uh, you know, as 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 my addiction had started to progress, even before he had gotten killed, me and him had had kind of like a, a falling out, and uh, Christmas was rolling around, so you know, I was planning on catching up with him at mom's and kind of patching everything up, you know, so we could move past it because we had never had no point of time in our lives where we never really talked to each other. Or got along, but you know, unfortunately, he he uh, got hit by a drunk driver up there on Little Creek Road, uh, December nineteenth, two thousand five. So, you know, kind of took that pretty hard. It kind of kind of really hurt because I never had a chance to uh, make things right with him. And I think it kind of weighed on my mind for a long time. But as time has gone on, I've you know, I finally, I think now I don't know if it's just come with age or just realizing that these people are just not gonna. They're just gonna keep throwing more and more time at me. That I just I had to let all of it go, like every last bit of it. All any kind of pain or dissatisfaction with myself and what I've done, or you know. So I, I had to let all of that go and realize that now it's time for me to start completely over, start from scratch. And uh, I think it's like a blessing that I'm here to uh, you know work with to work with y'all and see and and looking just in a few days that I've been here, what y'all got going on. I really feel like I'm really here for a reason. I, I think this is the time and uh, everything is finally going to come back together and I can make my family and friends proud. So so once this incident happened to your brother, um, you know, what transpired uh, post that event? You know, like how did, you know, what, um, you know, cause it seems like, you know, there's like some guilt associated with that, like, you know, um, maybe if y'all have, you know, been patched up or I, I know all the, the guilty feelings that come along when somebody passes. So I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but I imagine that was, that was going on. But 
so what um was it a very evident uh you know uh progression downward progression or transgression or whatever you want to call it of um you know your your problem with substances um right after he passed away or was it a a, a long time that it kind of you know went downhill or, or what did that look like well it was already like starting to get out of control and then when when he passed it's like i just kind of lost any interest of or just you know i just just lost control just turned into the biggest snowball and just took off and just started rolling downhill and just got bigger and bigger and then you know within a few months you know it wasn't long and you know i'm i'm catching charges and you know it's a really bad time you know what i'm saying like it was pretty it was pretty rough and then you know i never really had a chance to like really grieve cuz i went from just staying high and numbing the pain to getting locked up to where not really a place that you want to like let show any emotion. Yeah. So you're keeping everything bottled up. So then get out and you feel like, all right, well, I got it. And then, you know, it just kind of comes back to it come, creeps back up on you. And then you think you got it under control. And then it just, you know, it keeps, it keeps coming back until you finally get to the point to where you just, you know, for me, I just had to like, you know, let it all go. So did you when you were incarcerated? Did you ever, um, you know, did they ever show any concern or, um, you know, meet with any type of mental health person or anybody to talk about anything that was going on with you uh, while you were incarcerated? No, nah, not really. That's not really. That's not their forte, really. Unless you're like really asking for some serious help, then maybe they'll get a psychologist or something to come talk to you. But you know, like for the most part, you know, that's kind of like non-existent. And uh, even even at you know at their little therapeutic communities they set up, it's not really it's not really designed to uh, really deal with something like that so much. You know what I mean? They really just that really doesn't fit their scheme of things. Yeah. So to me, it's just crazy listening because it's like you know you, you definitely say you had you know some issues prior to your your brother um, you know passing, but. You know, you had this this very traumatic event occur, and um, you know you begin to go downhill rapidly after that, um, or accelerate your 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 downward spiral. And uh, you know, you get incarcerated. And I think that uh, we were talking a little bit about this yesterday, but um, you know, from the general public standpoint, they kind of look at incarceration as um, you know we're going to punish this person, and they're not going to. You know they're not gonna they're not gonna do this again. Uh, so uh, because we're, they're gonna not want to get punished. But I think that you know the common sense thing to do, especially with someone in your situation, was okay. Um, what's the cause? Like what's going on with this person? Where we can you know maybe if we can deliver some services to them that can help um, deal with the, the 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 incident or the emotion that that caused the person to to uh, begin to go downhill. You know, there's a higher likelihood that we're going to keep them from coming back to jail if we address that issue than if we just punish somebody. So, um, you know, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think they really missed the uh, they're missing opportunities to really try and help and steer people back to a normal life, you know, they, I think they, they've been stuck in this mentality of you commit a crime, we're going to make you do some time. 
and we're going to warehouse you and just that alone is going to fix you and when you get out you go back to being a, a, a citizen which is the furthest thing from the truth because the whole thing is is you're sitting in these basically warehouses around a bunch of other criminals and you really you're not you don't have no direction so you really just get back into doing the the same old thing when you get out it's they're really they really don't try to help you as much as they just try to just find a place to lay you down you know it's it's, it's a sad fact they really there are some programs that are starting to come come about in the last probably five or ten years, like drug court and stuff like that, and that that seems to help some people. They don't have a great success rate, but there's just so much more they could they could do, you know, to help some of these guys, you know, myself included, to uh, being able to break the cycle of keep you know going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You know, it's one thing to make your mistake. And have to go through the time, but it really helps if you could, you make your mistake, you do your time, but then you get, you know, the the help that you need to push you past that. So once you return back to the free world, you don't have to return back to their world. So so you went into prison with a pretty bad drug problem. Uh, how'd you come out of prison? Um. Well. This time or the first time? The first time. The first time, the first time I ended up leaving through the diversion center. So I'd actually like been working and saved some money. And, you know, I came home. I had my stuff together pretty much. I'd got my license back. I'd got a car. I was working. I was doing pretty good for a while. And just, you know, it went from taking a little pain pill here and there to selling pills to, oh, I'm going to take some more. I'll reward myself. And then, you know. One becomes two, and two becomes twenty, and then the next thing you know, it's uh, <laughs> you're running around scrambling, you know, doing dumb mess. So that's 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 how it all ended the first time. So did you? Um, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but um, so did you? So we know that there's there's substances inside of you know uh, institutions. So. Uh, that first go-round, did you participate in that type of behavior when you were incarcerated? You know, I can honestly say that I never got high in prison. I never got high in prison. I smoked one little roll-up joint one time, the whole time, out of all the years that I've done in jail and prison, that one time. And I was so paranoid. <laughs> me too. Me I, went, too. I went in the chow hall with my sunglasses on because I didn't want the swords to see my bloodshot eyes. And from then on, I was like, nah, this it ain't this kind of party. I can't, I can't function like this." Yeah, I, I remember being in the city jail, man, and um, you know, you kind of get so in those type of environments, um, specifically like high, um, high conflict areas where you know anything subject to pop off at any time, you know, you kind of got to be alert and um, you know, but then you kind of get used to. Well, for me, I, I got used to things that were going on in there, and, and I. But then when I remember when I smoked a joint one time in there, man, and it was like I started noticing things that I had that my maybe I was tripping, I don't know, but I started seeing things that I wasn't necessarily aware of before I got high, and I started like seeing the little clicks and the groups and like the plotting in people, and it was like, <laughs> dude, it was the most uncomfortable high I've ever had, and I was like, you know what, like I don't want to do this no more, you no know, way. and uh, and I didn't, man, but um, 
but yeah, I, I guess I was just curious about that because, you know, I wanted to know if, because, um, you know, I've heard some people's stories, man, where, you know, and this happens a lot, and you've seen it, I'm sure, being incarcerated, but I see a lot of people that, you know, have, um, don't really have drug issues, and, and then, um, you know, they go to prison. They may have some behavior issues, like selling drugs or committing crimes, and may even use drugs, but don't have a severe drug problem. Um, you know, may go into jail, a drug distributor, specifically like cocaine or something like that, and then come out with a with an opioid problem, you know. Yeah. And, um, and so I kind of just wanted to shed a little light on that, I think. You know, sometimes people come in to come out of prison worse than they came in, you know, in more ways than one. Oh, absolutely. I've seen, like you say, I've seen people who never really had a drug problem. They get in there, they get a drug problem. Or you've had, you got people that had a drug problem when they came in and they just continue to use the whole time or as much as they could because it's very expensive, uh, the whole time while they're down. So, when they get out, all they do is just go right back to reverting, you know, to what they were doing before because they they really never stopped. So you know, that that's that that really is like a really big issue and all in itself. That's like a whole nother that's a whole nother topic. But you can't expect anybody to be able to get their get their stuff together if they were using the whole time. That's why you know they, people think it's crazy to be like. Man, such and such just did five years. It ain't even two months. He's locked back up. Well, I mean, he was never really locked up. He, you know, he won't away from anything. He was getting high the whole time. So all he did was hit the street and kept doing what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I, I, I share when I do groups. Sometimes I share with the guys. I say, you know, like what you do, especially when I worked in the jail, because people have a tendency to sit in the jail and they think they have all these plans about, okay, I'm going to get out and I'm going to do this. But the whole time they're in jail, they're gambling, they're, you know, running the store box, they're doing like addictive type behavior. And, um, you know, and then they get out and they think that they're going to make some type of change. And like, you know, it's just a force of law, like scientific law of like the, the, the law of momentum. You know, like if you're going in one direction, you know, um, uh, 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 the door opening up from the prison is not going to change your direction. You know what I'm saying? Like if, no. you're, if you're in jail headed one way, the only thing that's go- you're going to do when your door opens is you're going to keep heading in that direction. You're just going to do it in a different environment. You know, and so, um, and I see that, you know, with a lot of people and I see that in myself, you know. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I share this little bit of story, man, and maybe you can you can understand this, man, but... You know, I can remember the first time going to jail or prison. Uh, actually, first time I got locked up when I was a juvenile. And, um, you know, I remember being scared walking in there, you know, because you hear all these stories about, you know, uh, being locked up or whatever. And uh, I remember being scared going in. And then I remember, you know, 15, 20 years later, uh, after doing about two years, I was, you know, and I was really the first time I ever really wanted to do something different with my life. I had went to some programs while I was incarcerated. And, uh, and, and, um, you know, when I was about to get out, man, I was scared to get out of jail, man. You know, it was like I was sitting there with my with my bunkmate. You know, we were in open dorms in the city jail. But I was sitting there with him, and I was telling him, I was like, man, I'm scared. I'm scared to get out of here because, um, I, I, you know, I was had consistently got out of jail and went back and did the exact same thing. And I knew how to stay clean in jail, you know, um, but I did not know how to stay clean on the street, you know, and I didn't know how to how to be successful, man. And so um, I guess I'm curious as, as to, uh, you know, institutionalization, man. You know, do you have any experience with that? Yeah, well, it's like as hard as prison sounds, 
it really becomes easy once you get there, you know. <clears throat> you wake up, they feed you. A little while later, they feed you again. A little while later, they feed you again. <laughs> <clears throat> you got a bed, you take a shower, the water's free, the soap is cheap. You know, your life becomes very simple, you know, just to live day to day. So the scary part gets out to where they say, okay, well, we're getting ready to open this door and let you out. And now you got to go fend for yourself. So now you're like, now that's definitely like a time to where you start to get a, a little nervous and anxious, especially if you haven't really sat down or thought about or worked on yourself and trying to figure out exactly what your steps are going to be to try and not come back. If you really haven't spent any time trying to, you know, get yourself together or at least mentally prepare yourself, it, it can be scary. And you'll almost be like, oh, I don't really want to go because I've actually seen people that would, you know, actually was like, I really don't want to get out of prison. You know, I, I eat better in here than I do on the street, you know, and that's, that's really a scary thought, man. It really is. It really is. I, I can definitely, I can definitely relate to that because, you know, not to say that I was scared, but I'm always, you know, you always get the nervousness of just going home, but you know, don't I want to, you know, you got to want it to succeed too. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know, man, I, I think that, um, you know that. So if if if, if you know eighty percent of people incarcerated have a substance use issue, and we know that stress is and mental health uh, and mental health, right? And so if if we know that stress is a number one, um, you know the number one contributor to somebody relapsing or falling back into negative patterns of behavior or having, you know, a recurrence of mental health issues that it that it 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 will exacerbate the mental health issue. Um, <clears throat> so stress does that, um, you know, and, and because what I, what I know happens is we sit in jail, right. And we do this little reentry stuff and, um, and they sit there and, you know, make a plan about this and plan about that. But all of this stuff is based upon a projection of how my, what it's going to look like when I get out, you know, um, you know, okay, I, I'm going to do this, this and this, and, and I need to do this. And this is what it's going to be like for me. But the reality is, is that, my experience is I would sit there and make these plans and then I would get out and the plan didn't fit because my situation was completely different than what I thought it would be. Right. And so, um, you know, did you face any type of, any type of that stuff where you, you know, cause I know you've had to do reentry, um, you know, and even at the diversion center that last week, you ain't working, you're going to all that stuff, uh, your graduation and all that. Um, you know, but, uh, but likewise in prison, they send you through that, through that reentry, um, you know, so how did, uh, what was your experience with the reentry process and, 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 um, does yours kind of mirror my experience or, you know, is there something different that, 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 that you dealt with? Well, yeah, the reentry has got some, some good points to it and it's got, it's got some stuff that is kind of, you know, nonsical, but they do give you some good information of, you know, to hit the street. Um, yeah, I really, you know, for me, it's just was taking the stuff that I could use and use it and taking the other stuff and, you know, just kind of discarding it and just coming up with coming up with a plan of something that's, you know, was obtainable. You know what I'm saying? Like, all right, I know that no matter what the situation is, I know I can do X, Y, and Z, you know, and that's what I had to, you know, figure out what I was going to do, you know, like I, I knew I was going to try and go to a halfway house in Richmond and ended up in here. I know that I'll be getting to work, you know, sometime soon. After that, I'll try and get a license. So it was just like about, for me, is making steps 
that I know that I could obtain so I wouldn't get caught up in, like, disappointment of, like, you know, feeling like, oh, God damn it, I failed again. You know what I'm saying? Like, setting my goals too high. And so what is, um, so in the ideal world, um, because, because it, it, uh, so going back, backtracking a little bit, when you told me that you got out, you know, the first time you got a job, you know, got your license back and got all that stuff back, but still you fell back eventually into the same cycle um, that you did before. What do you think could have um, could have uh, helped you not fall back into that or, um, you know, to fall back into that cycle? Was there something missing? Was there something that could have been provided to you? Um, or do you just think that, you know, you just weren't ready? Uh, probably a little bit of all of that. Probably mostly big majority of it was is, I wasn't really ready, you know, I would, you know, I was lying to myself, you know, like I told somebody yesterday, if I, if I lie to you, it doesn't hurt you at all. But if I sit here and lie to myself that I've got it under control, that I don't need no help, that, you know, I'm taking this car and I'm, I'm gone, then I'm going to crash, you know? So, you know, it starts with, for me, it had to start with me. I had to, I got to make sure that I'm keeping myself right. And if I think my belief is if I keep the person that's sitting in this chair, right then everything else is going to be all right because and that was the problem that i'd had before is because then i would lie to myself oh i got it i've been doing good let me roll myself and like i said one becomes two and two becomes 20 because i tricked myself now on the other hand of that shorters you know like people that have like heroin addictions like back home you know these people that go down to these social services places to get help and they're like, okay, well, come on in and sign up, blah, 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 blah. All right, well, we'll try and get you in the clinic or we'll try and get you some help, but it's probably going to be two or three or four weeks before we can get you in. So just in the meantime, go ahead and com- continue to get high, put your life at the line, and, you know, try not to go to prison or catch any charges in the meantime. You know, they're, they're, they do have some private ones set up, but, you know, for a lot of people that are strung out, they don't have 175 or 200 bucks to go down to for a for a paid clinic to be able to get into in a few days. So they really need these services because, you know, the last thing a junkie is going to want to do is come off his last little bit of money to go, to go pay for something. If, you know, okay, we'll come in and pay today. And then you can start in a couple of days. They don't want to, they, don't wanna, they ain't <laughs> yeah. trying to, they ain't trying to hear that because then, you know, they know they're going to be back to scrambling again. So. Yeah. And plus, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a window, man, when an addict, or a person with substance use disorder ask for help, right? There's like a very small window where they say, okay, I'm ready, I need help. And it's like, it is paramount that we take advantage of that right then because I know from my story, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, in your in your walk, you know, you've probably faced similar things where it was like you're at that point where you're like, man, I got to do something, you know. But if something doesn't happen in that brief window, then I'm going to find ways and means to get more. And once I once I get some more, then it's, I'm going to keep going until I don't have any means to get any more or to continue doing what I'm doing. And then I'm going to be desperate again. But there's always like these short windows. I think you're hitting it right on the head, man. You know, same day services and being able to provide people with help right when they need it, um, you know, is important. I, I also think... Um, you know, now with the, the opiates being, you know, as strong as they are, you know, it really is a life or death, you know, situation, man. You know, somebody, you know, go in there and if they can't get an appointment for a week or, or 10 days or, you know, uh, sometimes two or three weeks, um, you know, then, you know, there's a likelihood that they're either going to end up in jail or, or end up dead. 
And so, uh, you know, I think that's a, a good point to make. And so, um, so in the ideal world, um, you know, so say, you know, um, if you were a reentry coordinator, what do you think would be uh, some things that you would put in place to try to, um, you know, because I think some uh, very rarely do they ask us what we need. You know what I mean? Right. Very rarely do they come to us and say, hey, uh, which which completely makes sense, right? Like, we're the mm-hmm. ones that know this. We've walked it. We've been through it. Yeah. Um, very rarely have they come to us and said, hey, what do, you, what do you think could improve this? Or what do you guys need that we could help provide? You know, so in an ideal world, what, what would reentry look like to you? In an ideal world reentry, I think that it would be set up more to where you know, they just kind of tell you what you need to be doing. Of course, you know, they try and, like, help people. There's a lot of guys who are locked up that's really never worked or had no job, so they kind of try and find a way to put a resume and stuff together, and, you know, they try and tell them some things that kind of help them. But I, I think the reentry, what they really, to me, what they really need to do is to be able to Stop calling it re-entry. Let's make it entry. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Let's let's get it to where when you get out, guess what? We still got your back. We've got companies or we got schools or we got people that are on the outside that are set up that are ready to help you continue your journey towards doing the right thing. So, you know, sure you're re-entering, but you know, let's 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 help you when you're on the outside because going to a classroom and sitting around talking about stuff and pointing out things and teaching you how to write things, all of that stuff is good and well. But, you know, having that extra step on the outside to where, all right, well, when you leave today, call, call. you know, you, you said you were interested in this class or this job or whatever. We've got, a, we know, we've got something set up with these people where they're willing to take you on or this school is willing to, you know, put you in this trade class. You know, go down there, go see your PO and go sign up for these classes. Let's get this set up. Because, you know, from like the stuff that I've read and like the research that I've seen is, you know, most of these people that are, uh, if they can get out and get and maintain gainful employment just for six months, that first six months, if they get past that six months or year mark and they got the job and they're making money and they're taking care of the family, they don't come back. It drops by like 65%, which is a huge number. Yeah. Because if you flip that number around, that means every six and a half people out of ten is coming back to prison if they're not, you know what I mean? I think it's just, uh, to me personally, I think it's uh, it'd be a huge thing to have more things set up to where people have more help when they get out instead of trying to show them some things, which they need, but on the, on the other side is where they really need to help because that's where the real struggle begins. Because sitting in the prison and doing that, you can maintain, but when you get on the other side of that fence, that's where, you know, I think that's where people really need the help. And I also believe, I really think that, you know, they should make like going to halfway houses kind of mandatory or more of an option for uh, for people to where they can work on some life skills and get some money saved up and get their life back on together before they actually rotate back to what they were doing before. Yeah, and I think what I see a lot, man, and I agree, I agree with the job thing. I think that's important um, because, for one, it, it tackles a couple of different things, right? So it gives us a sense of purpose. It increases, right? It increases our it increases our self worth because we feel like we have some worth and we're we're doing something to better our life. Um, but at the same time, and this is what makes addiction so difficult 
uh, and substance use disorder is so difficult to to manage is that you know for somebody that doesn't have a well managed or well established recovery program, right? Um, a job can also be a means to 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 give them their uh, you know, to supply them with a with a trigger, which is having money on hand. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, oh yeah. And so it's like Agreed. the struggle is like, okay, let's get these people jobs, but at the same time, let's also give them the support that they need in order to help manage um, their substance use issue, man. Because you know, Absolutely. all the money in the world ain't gonna keep me clean. In fact, it may be it may be the exact opposite. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. it may cause me to, you know, because I know that that's been my story. I remember when I. Um, had got this job, and we were talking about this yesterday, but I was working at Dominion Power, and I, up until that point in my life, I had never made more than, you know, $10, $12 an hour, and I went to, from making that and uh, barely able to support myself to all of a sudden now I'm supporting a family. I, I got a, one child and another one on the way. I'm making 20 some dollars an hour. I have more money than I ever, you know, uh, dreamed possible. And so what happened for me was uh, having that amount of money gave me this overconfidence and this, this like you were talking about earlier, this sense that, okay, I got this now. I'm yeah. good, mm-hmm. right? And then my recovery kind of took a back seat because, you know, now I was like, oh, I'm finally here. I made it. You know, I don't need to do all this meetings and I don't need to do this recovery stuff no more because, you know, I got this job and I'm doing good. And, and it wasn't very long after that that I, um, you know, once I stopped uh, treating my, my disease, uh, of course, my disease re- reoccurred and, um, you know, reared his head. And then, you know, like you said, man, I, you know, once I put them two in me, within a week it was 20, 30, 40, you know what <laughs> I mean? And the next thing you know, that job, I no longer had that job. And then next thing you know, I no longer had that house. And the next <laughs> thing you know, I no longer had them kids and no longer had my wife. And we were both incarcerated and I was sitting in there again asking myself, how in the heck did this happen again? Again. You know, and um, and so... Uh, I think, you know, I want to commend you because, you know, we were talking when you first got here, and I think, you know, you don't, the court didn't necessarily make you come here. Yes, this was in your home plan to come here, but, um, you know, you didn't have to choose to come here. You have, you know, places I'm sure you probably could have went out of Norfolk, man, and so, you know, you made the decision to come here, um, and, and, and so I commend you on that, man, because I think that, you know, even though they aren't necessarily providing you from DOC standpoint what they um, community-based um, outlet to, to, to continue on your process. You went ahead and sought that out yourself. So what played into that and what caused you to, to seek that out and to, and to end up at a place like real life? Well, I just, one, I knew that I really didn't want to, I didn't want to go back to the Tidewater area, uh, at least not yet. You know, I wanted to be able to take it, take some time of being away from, everyone and everything that I know and, you know, try something different, you know, like I was supposed to go to another halfway house, but all that, you know, fell apart. And then this came about, which, you know, I think was, you know, for a good reason for, you know, whatever it was is I'm here. I'm grateful for that. But I, I just, I knew I wasn't ready to go back to Tidewater to begin with. So I wanted to come here to the city where I'd still be kind of close to my family and really get my life completely together if I decided to then go back to Tidewater or if I ended up really liking it up here and finding a job or a career that I really liked that I would still be close enough to be able to go and see my family and not be that far away. That's what played a, it played a major issue is just mainly not ready to just go back to Tidewater, ready to 
try something new in a new place with new faces and have a completely fresh start on 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 a, on, a, on a new life. So how do you so you know you brought your sons came up here, man. You know, good looking young man. Um, you know, uh, you were telling me a little bit about you know what's going on with them and the uh, you know ship building or whatever it is school or whatever. So um, how do you think they feel about um, or do you know how they feel about you know you coming here to um, to Richmond, man, as opposed to going back home? Well, from what I could tell, we never really like had that conversation, but I think that they they understand that I'm trying to do what's best for me and you know and even my oldest son said it, he was like, you know, get you together, you know what I'm saying? Like get you together. Whatever you got to do, do it, you know what I'm saying? Like cuz they're fine. They're all, you know, one is grown, one the other one's grown. My mom has done, and my sister too, because she was a big part of her lives, and my older brother. Um, they have turned out, in spite of me, have turned out to be fantastic children. They're very smart. They're well-rounded. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I know they got my back. <clears throat> and that, you know, that really that really helps in itself. It's knowing that they understand as much as they would like for me to be back there, you know, closer to them but they know it's better for me to probably not be back. You know what I'm saying? It's better to be a little further away and getting your shit together than to, you know, jump right in the fire and hope you don't burn up. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So, um, so, so, so what's important to Johnny Harrell, man? What are, you know, if I had to say, you know, give me a list of things that are important to you. What, what right now today at 9.30 a.m. on this Thursday morning um, is important to Johnny Harrell? Johnny Harrell. As selfish as it sounds, right now I have to be the most important thing that I got going on is to making sure that I I am staying on the straight and narrow and getting my life together because if I don't do that, then all the other stuff that I want to get back to being or becoming, you know, like good father, friend, employee, none of that's going to happen if I don't stay focused on the person that's sitting in this chair right now. Great answer, <laughs> very good answer. Uh, and so, uh, so if you could go back, you know, um, you know, to some years ago, um, you know, and you could do things differently, uh, would you? Yeah, you know, that's it's kind of a hard question. Sure, there's some things that I would have done different, you know, but all in all, for whatever reason, this was the path that you know. Of course, I still believe it was, you know decisions lead you here and that decision leads you there but for whatever reason i'm i'm here now i'm still breathing i've had a lot of uh friends that are not here no more and the other ones are in prison or you know or on their way to prison so for what you know i feel like i'm just lucky to to be able to be here right now that's that's key really because I got another chance. They don't, you know. Yeah, so the reason I ask you that question because people ask me that all the time, you know, and it's tough because, you know, when I say what I say, it's not that I don't have regret necessarily or I don't, you know, have some guilt around some of the pain that I caused my loved ones and, and, and some of the hurt that I've caused people. I do, man, but I'm, I'm very um, sure that I am who I am today. Um because of all the stuff that I went through, all the things that I've done, 
you know, have, have all of that plays a part in the makeup of who I am, you know, and I wouldn't be where I am if I wasn't who I am, you know. Um, but it gets difficult because sometimes I, I look at, you know, just, in, uh, you know, April 20th, I have four years clean. And so, um, and I see how drastically my life has changed in just four years. And sometimes it's it's hard for me not to look and think, damn, man, what if I had got this? You know, what if, like, where would my, exactly, what if my life had, what would my life be now if I had got clean 10 years ago as opposed to four years ago? Right. You know, because I'm, I'm, I'm almost 40. Um, you know, I got some, some younger children. Um, I'm just now in a position where I'm, you know, able to save some money and start thinking about, you know, what my life is going to look like, you know, 20 years from now, you know, and starting to save for that type of stuff. But, but it's like, you know, it's hard, you know, be 30 some years old, almost 40. And ain't got no type of money in retirement <laughs> or ain't got yeah. nothing. You know, because before, I don't know about you, but I never planned for nothing like that. You know what I mean? I never planned to be, I remember never planning to be 21 and then never planned. Once I got 20, I was like, I ain't going to make it till I'm 25. And then, you know, and by the time I was in my 30s, it was like I had, it, it was no, uh, it wasn't a surprise that I was ro- roaming around aimlessly because I had never planned to live that long. Yeah. You know, and so when I, when you don't, you know, plan to live that long, of course, you don't have a, 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 a plan or a goal, you know, what your life's going to be like 10 years from now because you didn't plan to be alive. Yeah, you know? just getting by day to day. You're, you know, you're just happy to be able to uh, get up and move around in the morning. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 it's tough, man. It's tough. Like, you know, that, that question is really tough because, like you say, some of the things you'll look back on all the, like, pain and stuff that you cause, you know, it is bad, and yeah, you know, I know that I that I that I've hurt and disappointed some people, and and mostly I've disappointed myself. But you know, part of me to 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 getting getting and staying on the right path is to you know, is you know, you say you're sorry and mean it, and moving past it because if you keep trying to get hung up on all that stuff that you did before, it's gonna it's gonna hinder you of being able to to move past it to where you can get to a point to like where you're at now. To where now you're able to start giving back, you know. So that's that's the path that it's led for you. Is you know, although you like you say you wish you could have went back ten years and got it right. If you'd have done that, you might have been on a whole different path, you know. But for some reason, you're here to help other people try and get to where you're where you're. Yeah, if you just if if, if you end up helping just fifteen or twenty people throughout a lifetime. And they end up getting it completely right, and then they help fifteen or twenty people. You know, now you 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 got to realize exactly like they talk about the butter, butterfly effect. Like you know that your little wing of flapping of you helping people and helped a few people, and those help people, it becomes a really big accomplishment. You don't you don't even realize it or see it, but it's it's really there. Yeah, and I think that that's my that, that's what I want. I mean, that's my goal, man. Is that you know, because the same way that negativity is 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 like a like a virus that spreads, you know, I think positivity can do the same thing. And quite honestly, man, like, um, you know, I've done, you know, from a humanity standpoint, I've done some serious damage, you know, leading people down the wrong path. I mean, I can't tell you how many people because when I was younger, man, it was like I thought drugs were great and fun, you know, and I led some people down that path, man. That, um, and I, I mean, they had their own choices. Don't get me wrong, but. You know, I, I played a part in being a, a bad uh, example and kind of, uh, and I was always a leader and I kind of led people down the wrong, some people down the wrong path. And some of those people didn't make it, man, you know, yeah. and they're not alive anymore. Yep. And so, um, you know, my way of 
of making amends to to the world and to to our you know human humanity is you know seeing whatever I can do to help um and so uh you know what it but you know back on you and then we're going to close this thing out but um you know what is the mark that you want to leave on the world you know what what um cuz you know these last what 10 years or so a little bit more have kind of been marked by um you know incarceration and you know letting yourself down you know um uh, some pain and things like that um you know but but your story's not over you're here right so so what what type of mark uh does Johnny Harrow want to leave on the world I want to leave a mark on the world that that you can make it man that no matter how hard it looks like that you know look at him he he did it he went through all that he went from the top to the bottom and he climbed all the way back out of that cellar and, it, you know, he got his life together. I want to be able to get to the point to where I'm able to help other people and give back. You know, I've always been that type of person anyway. But, you know, like you said, you've led people down the wrong paths and I've done the same thing. So I want to be somebody that can lead people down the right path, you know, maybe becoming like a big business owner where I can employ people and and help people and take people that are in really tough spots or just getting out of prison and being able to, you know, not necessarily hand out, you know, but a leg up to where they've got, you know, to be to be that, that friend or that person that somebody can pick up the phone and say, hey, look, I really need your help. And I have myself in a position to where I can say, I got your back. You know what I'm saying? I'm on my way or I'm going to do this and take care of it. That's that's what I, that's the kind of mark that I want to I want to leave a mark to where people can say, you know what, he was a great guy and he did a lot of great things for people. All right, and so with that being said, what are you doing? So if that if that's the mark you want to leave and that's the goal you have set for, you know who the person that you want to be, um, you know what what are you doing right now um, to achieve that? Well. First thing is, is, you know, the day by day, the day, the day by day fight, which is making sure that I keep myself on the straight and narrow. And then it's just taking the baby steps that is going to lead to it, you know, is first step, job, second step, license back, vehicle, continuing any kind of uh, trade school or any kind of um, continuing my education and eventually getting to the point to where if I want to like take something and branch out and start my own business, whether it's, you know, something in a welding field or if I want to get back in automotive and maybe open up a car lot or, you know, something like that. Right now it's just focusing on all the little baby steps to get me to where I want to go because I do want to go back to some school and continue my education and, and, and get some different degrees and different things that I like to learn. So how difficult is it being patient through through this process? Because, you know, I know it's a lot of times when that door pops and we come out and we've been gone for X amount of time, you know, we come out and it's like, man, I got, you know, I got these ideas and these things I want to do. Um, you know, how 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 difficult is it being patient, um, you know, and, 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 and focusing on, you know, each day as its own entity and then waiting for, um, you know, waiting for for those things to come to fruition is that is that something that that's a struggle for you or not? Well, in the times before, it was a struggle because that's how it was. But I don't know if it's just from getting older or wiser or just from 
the patience has become a lot easier because I've realized that every time that I got out before that I hit the ground running, was trying to do a hundred things at one time. And then, you know, you just ran smack into a wall. Mm -hmm. So the patience part is great. And, uh, and then, and then like with y'all taking this first two weeks to really just work on getting your stuff together, it kind of helps you keep your foot on the brake a little bit to kind of slow you down and ease you back in. I think it's, it's, it's a great thing. So the patience part this time hasn't bothered me. So if anybody wants to learn from my mistake, just get out and, and take it slow. You might want to get a hundred things done, but just try and pluck them off one at a time. And then before you know it, your whole list will be done anyway. You know, my, when I, I might've said this in a previous podcast, but um, one of my, my old mentors, we're still friends today, but uh, his name is Raymond Isaiah. He's a, he was a pastor at the Salvation Army when I was there. Um, man, he had this saying, man, that he, he used to tell us, man, he said, success is when prep, preparation meets opportunity. You know, and for me, like, it's been, that's been so, so big in my recovery this time around because, um, you know, what I, well, all I had to focus on was each 24 hours a day, preparing myself by doing whatever I could to improve me, like you said earlier about, you know, you being the most important, um, you know, uh, in your life right now, you know, once I do that and prepare myself, when the opportunity arises, right, I'm in a position to be able to take advantage of the opportunity, um, you know, but if I'm always looking at what's next, then I'm I'm missing that 24, like I'm not even taking full advantage of, of the time that I have, man, so um, I just want to encourage you, Johnny, man, I think that um, you know, the future is bright for you, man. I think that, you know, you, not, not, I think I know, you know, you can literally do anything you want to do, man. And, um, you know, I hope that you can make, continue to maintain, uh, the, the, the attitude that you have now, uh, because ultimately, man, at the end of the day, one thing I know is before I got into recovery, they used to tell me, uh, you know, I used to think that, okay, I, I'm gonna get clean. I'm gonna start doing right. And everything's going to be great because I had so much bad stuff happen in my life as a result of my addiction. What I have found is that um, bad stuff continues to happen to people, man. I mean, just because you get clean and get your life together, yeah. right, doesn't mean that uh, you're not going to face struggle, not going to face strife, um, you know. But, um, but you know, as long as I can, uh, you know, to the best of my ability, keep a positive attitude, um, you know, then the, the, the problems that I do face, um, you know, I won't blow them out of proportion to make them bigger than they are. In fact, I may even make them a little bit smaller and, and, and make it easier for me to overcome them. So I just want to encourage you, man, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I'm glad that you decided to come here to the Real Life Community Center. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, um, that I'm able to work with you, man, and I, and, I, and, I, and I hope and I pray that you get everything that you want, man. So, um, you know, thank you for, for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for, for giving us an opportunity to help you, man, and, um, you know, I look forward to watching your journey. Yeah, thank thank you. You know, I'm 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 glad I'm here. Like I said, I got another chance. So you know, if I can do it, you know, hopefully somebody can see that I've done it, and then they can get on they can get on the same path. You know, so I got a lot of family and friends that um that I want to you know show them that I've got this thing under control and that that everything is good. There's a lot of people that I have love for and they have love for me. You know, so I love. You know, I'd love to show them that I got this. That's that's it's gonna be a great thing. 
All right, so last thing before we close, uh, if you had a message for somebody out there struggling with an addiction issue, struggling with, uh, you know, long history of incarceration, struggling with reentry, struggling with, um, you know, family issues or, or the death of a, a loved one, um, you know, what is, what is uh, you know, what is something you would tell? If you were speaking directly to somebody out there who's struggling right now, what, what would you say to them? I would say it's, you got to keep up the fight and you got to be – you got to sit there and actually look at yourself and say, you know what, I'm sick of this life right here, and 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 reach out to somebody. There's somebody out there that, is, that loves you and is willing to go to bat for you and give you all the help, and you just got to let that pride down and reach out and take it and embrace it and just keep fighting and realizing you got to fight for every day because it's, you know, like – especially for like heroin addicts, you know, you never know when that, that last shot is going to be your last one. So you got to feel like, you know, it's not all about just making money and being successful. It's about just being alive. And so it's a really, it's a really big picture than just, just making money and being successful. It's being here on this earth. So if you think today's bad, try missing one. <laughs> I know that's right. Well, look, thank you again, man, for being on, man. I appreciate you. Thank you.